Hello and welcome to the reading of the business record for Friday, October 29th, 2021. I'm your reader, Susan Hack. We'll start with the cover story, Changing the System, Closing the Racial Inequities in the Home Lending System, by Michael Crum. Geneva Wanja wants to buy a home to provide a more stable and secure life for her six-year-old son, Akeem. Unfortunately for Wanja and many others like her, their pathway to home ownership collided with barriers created by a system that they say disproportionately affects immigrants and people of color. Those barriers, which often focus on credit scores and down payments, can become a workforce issue at a time when Iowa is experiencing stagnant population growth and a shortage in its labor force. If someone can't buy a home in their community or state, they may leave Iowa and move to a state where buying a home may be easier, experts say. Wanja, 26, immigrated to the United States as a refugee from war-ravaged Sierra Leone when she was 10 years old in 2005. After growing up in foster care, she is now a single mom, taking classes at Des Moines Area Community College. She is working at Iowa Legal Aid as part of the AmeriCorps program and wants to go to law school someday and become an attorney who helps survivors of domestic violence. Her other dream? To be a homeowner. It will mean having a safe, stable environment for my child, she said. The Barriers to Home Ownership At the root of the issue is a lack of access to wages and resources that allow people to reach their goal of owning a home, said Amal Barr, Vice President of Planning and Strategy at Oak Ridge Neighborhood Services, which provides a wide array of services to support and engage residents. Data shows us again and again that communities of color have less access to living wages and an income that allows them to manage housing stability. And immigrant and refugee communities are disproportionately impacted by that because they're starting a new life in a new community without any of the resources they had access to in their old country, Barr said. According to the Director's Council's One Economy Blueprint for Action, 69.3% of black residents in Polk County rent their homes, compared with 32.9% of the general population. The median earnings for black residents in Polk County are just over $24,600, compared with a little more than $36,700 for the whole county. The report from 2020 showed 22.1% of black Des Moines residents are unbanked or don't have a relationship with a bank or credit union, compared with the statewide average of 3% unbanked. And from 2014 to 2017, black residents in Polk County were denied loan applications at a rate of 24.15%, compared with the overall denial rate of 10.94%. During that period, only 1.6% of all home mortgages in the Des Moines and West Des Moines area were made to black applicants, the report showed. Barr said, all too often, people of color and those in the refugee community don't get paid enough, even working full-time, to afford everything their family needs, 
far less save for a home. If you can't save, you can't think and dream of home ownership or doing things for yourself or for your family, she said. The change that is needed will require the community to undergo some self-reflection, she said. I think we really need to be intentional and open to asking ourselves the critical question of, do we have an economic infrastructure to be able to ensure that our community members have what they need to thrive, she said. Other pieces of the puzzle are financial rights and literacy education, workers' rights, and what resources can be tapped into when a crisis occurs, Barr said. Another piece is access to culturally appropriate programming to address issues, such as language barriers among refugees that, quote, will help them transition and understand the cultural differences and nuances of their new communities, end quote, Barr said. Changing the system, not the applicant. Work is underway nationally and locally to examine the home financing system to determine what inequities and challenges exist that create a glaring disparity between white potential homeowners and potential homeowners of color, said Eric Burmeister, executive director of the Polk County Housing Trust Fund. The trust is the chief planning, advocacy, and funding organization for affordable housing in Polk County and is responsible for crafting the strategic plan for affordable housing. There's work going on to pull apart the various pieces of the system, Burmeister said. Is it our credit scoring system that's creating the most problems? Is it credit history? Is it the down payment requirements? I think as we start to look at each of these components individually, as opposed to the whole, we learn which parts are most problematic, he said. Burmeister said instead of just saying a lot of potential homeowners of color don't qualify, the question needs to be asked, why don't they qualify? Do we tackle this inequity by changing the system or by trying to change the applicant, he said. One issue that needs to be addressed is existing debt, Burmeister said. A project done last summer by an intern for the Polk County Housing Trust Fund looked at over 300 applicants for Habitat for Humanities program. It found that credit history and existing debt were the primary disqualifying factors for people of color, Burmeister said. If that is true, then what do we need to do as a community, or what does the mortgage lending industry need to do to change its underwriting requirements to include more applicants of color falling into the acceptance pool as opposed to the decline pool, he said. Burmeister said people of color generally have higher debt-to-income ratios because they tend to own a car, which is generally the second most expensive asset bought on credit. And because people of color tend to earn less, that debt is a higher percentage of their overall income. That is skewing the debt-to-income ratio to the point where they don't qualify, he said. That raises the question about what is and isn't included when considering debt-to-income ratios, Burmeister said. So, did we say, should auto debt, either part of it or all of it, 
be included or none of it, he said. We do know by including it, you disproportionately deny mortgages to minority applicants, he said. Changing the system won't be easy because on the federal level, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, the entities created by Congress to provide liquidity, stability, and affordability to the mortgage market, dictate the underwriting standards used by banks and credit unions, said Burmeister, who practiced real estate law for 30 years before taking the helm at the Polk County Housing Trust Fund. Overcoming Barriers Tony Montgomery, executive director of Des Moines-based Home, Inc., said one of the biggest challenges his organization sees is a lack of down payment money and a lack of access to credit. Home, Inc., a nonprofit affordable housing organization, provides counseling and education to help people become successful home buyers, renters, and landlords, and develops, builds, and rehabilitates homes to create affordable housing. Montgomery said most of the people his organization works with are low-income and don't have down payments for a mortgage. They also may have poor credit or don't have an established credit history because they don't have a relationship with a bank, he said. For those who suggest that people who are denied a mortgage should work harder, make more money, and save more money, Montgomery said that's not always the answer. That is the ideal solution, but not everyone has access to the tools to do that, he said. That is an idealist response, but that's not always possible. Unfortunately, for some of these things, it becomes a barrier. Poor credit can be more like a scarlet letter for people, he said. Montgomery said changes need to be made to address issues which are often systemic and have led to the racial gap where people of color are 2.6% more likely to be rejected for a mortgage than their white counterparts. He advocated for including rental history in the mortgage underwriting process, a concept recently floated by the Federal Housing Finance Authority, which regulates Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. That's not currently part of traditional credit, so many banks don't take that into consideration, Montgomery said. If I paid my rent on time for two years and was never late, they don't take that into consideration. It's not factored into your credit score. Changing our approach to how we evaluate credit worthiness at the system level is part of the solution, he said. So is understanding the causes of poor credit, he said. Let's look at those things as opposed to trying to get all borrowers to just fix the things that are barriers, Montgomery said. Creating access to education about the home buying process is also a key factor, he said. It can be very complicated, he said. It's difficult for people who have been generational renters or those who are refugees who are people that English is a second language. Education can also provide them the skills needed to make sound financial decisions and avoid predatory lenders, Montgomery said. The community also needs to expand access to affordable housing and down payment assistance programs, Montgomery said. It's thinking differently about the home buying process, he said.
the workforce connection. Finding solutions to racial inequities in the housing system can be critical as the state works to solve its labor shortage, said Almardi Abdallah, Vice President of Family and Workforce Programs at Oak Ridge Neighborhood Services. And it will be incumbent on the business community to be part of that conversation, he said. One issue, Abdallah said, is that traditional lending practices discourage Muslims from borrowing money because paying interest is forbidden under Islamic law. Because accommodations aren't made by traditional lenders, otherwise qualified applicants will find it nearly impossible to buy a home in Iowa, he said. That means that those individuals may leave Iowa for other states where programs to accommodate them are available, Abdallah said. That's the barrier, and we need to break the cycle, Abdallah said. To prevent Iowa from losing some of its top talent to other states, change is needed, he said. This will not only make Iowa more attractive to immigrants, but also it's a great way to retain in immigrants in our state, Abdallah said. Abdallah said his goal is to raise awareness at all levels and engage the community in the search for solutions that will help Muslim immigrants settle in the community and buy a home. He said he has talked with banks and credit unions, and most have responded that they didn't know about the issue. You always get this aha moment when you're talking about this issue, Abdallah said. Jennifer Cooper, vice president and manager of commercial real estate at Bankers Trust Company, acknowledged that the lending system is not set up to accommodate interest-free loans. Abdallah said Iowa's economy could be made stronger if it could keep immigrants in the state by making the pathway to home ownership easier. These are fellow citizens who are hardworking, who would like to make Iowa home, he said. They're graduating college, and they are our future employees, staff, and leaders of our communities. Having more homeowners in our state, it's a win-win for all of us. Abdallah encouraged businesses to get involved and create programs to help immigrant employees overcome those barriers to home ownership. In this economy right now, we have a shortage in the labor market, so businesses must be creative and they must be ahead of the curve, and I think home ownership should be something they look at, he said. Burmeister said the business community needs to understand the urgency of doing something to help people become homeowners. Unless we start as a community using our financial resources to mitigate these past inequities, it doesn't really mean much, he said. We need the business community, and I mean the banks, credit unions, our big mortgage companies, to come together to create a big pool of down payment assistance money that can be distributed to folks of color. It will be complicated to set up so that you don't violate fair lending rules, but it can be done, he said. He said home ownership can lead to intergenerational wealth, which all too often escapes people of color and immigrants who can become perpetual renters because they are shut out of the home buying market. Getting someone started on the path to home ownership? For the community, it's seed money. You only have to do that once, Burmeister said. 
that gets a family started on homeownership and starts to build that wealth that then passes down and multiplies generation by generation, he said. The Dream For Wanja, the single mom who aspires to be an attorney, becoming a homeowner would be the realization of the dream she had when she came to the United States as a child. It would mean a better life for her son than she had growing up, said Wanja, who tearfully recalled her own father and grandparents being killed in the war in her home country. Wanja and her son now rent an apartment in the Oak Ridge neighborhood, which she describes as a better environment for her son than the apartment complex where they lived previously. She has applied to some housing programs, only to be rejected because of credit issues, Wanja said. All I experienced throughout my childhood was war and tragedy, she said. I came to America thinking it was heaven. I don't want to imagine being discriminated against and not having the better life that I want. It's hard enough to get used to the system here. They should consider some of us who are not used to the American system, and it's going to take that support and encouragement, especially for those of us who don't have family here. If we don't get that, it's going to be even more traumatizing on us, she said. Wanja said it's her dream to give her son a better life, and she hopes that she can put her past behind her and that someone will give her a chance as she looks to a better future. As a single mom, I would do anything to see that my son has a better life, and me trying to get a home, it's not just for my benefit, for the benefit of but for the benefit of the young one that I'm raising, because I don't want that child to have to experience what I've experienced, she said. Things happen in life. We cannot change what happens. But what can change is that support system that can help that person rise from what they're falling away from, she said. We'll turn now to the Insider Notebook Bits and Bites of the Finer Side of Iowa Business Russell Makes the Leap from Wine Enthusiast to Winery Co-Ownership by Joe Gardias. Delta Dental of Iowa CEO Jeff Russell has partnered with a longtime friend to launch an Oregon winery, Catalyst Ridge Wines. With the idea of bringing some of the best of the Willamette Valley's vintages and winemakers' talents to Iowa and the Midwest. Russell, who has been a wine enthusiast for a number of years, says he had many discussions over a glass of wine with his friend and now business partner, Mark Zook. The discussions became more serious as both furthered their wine education, Russell learning informally during numerous trips to the West Coast and chatting with winemakers and tasting room staff, while Zook, who lives in Salem, Oregon, has a degree in viticulture and earned a vineyard operations certificate. Russell, Delta Dental's CEO since May 2013, has known Zook, a credit union executive, for more than 20 years through his previous roles in the credit union industry. In 2019, the fate of geography connected them with a renowned winemaker, Joe Dobbs, who lives just across the street from Zook's house in the Willamette Valley. We came to him and asked him, would you ever consider making wine for us? 
Russell said. Fast forward to today, and Catalyst Ridge Wines recently released its 2019 vintage wines, with a goal of representing the Pinot Noirs and Chardonnays that can be produced in the Valley's special microclimate. They also had the good fortune that Blossom Ridge, the vineyard owned by Dobbs, has a long-standing partnership with the winemaker Alex Sokol Blosser, which led to a 2017 vintage sparkling wine that Catalyst Ridge is featuring. Our business model is this, make great wine and bring it to Iowa, Russell said. As noted on their website, Catalyst Ridge plans to use future vintages to bring limited edition wines made by both renowned winemakers and up-and-comers from Willamette Valley. Catalyst Ridge Wines can be found at Gateway Market in Des Moines and at Wine Styles stores in Greater Des Moines. They're also served at Des Moines Golf and Country Club, Embassy Club West, and Glen Oaks Country Club. We'll continue to expand that, Russell said. We got a good reception at an event at the Embassy Club West last month. The wines can also be ordered online through the winery's website, www.catalyst.wine. Meanwhile, Russell is keeping his day gig with Delta Dental. Asked if the winery is part of his retirement plan, Russell laughed. I've told people it's really my hobby, he said. I'm terrible at golf. This is what I do. I'm terrific at building businesses. This is an opportunity that combines a passion with something I love to do, he said. Waterloo City Council passes bereavement policy for loss of pregnancy by Emily Kestel. Three days after National Pregnancy and Infant Loss Awareness Day, the Waterloo City Council on October 18th unanimously passed a resolution that establishes a paid bereavement policy for loss of pregnancy. Introduced by Councilmember Jonathan Greeter, the policy would eventually cover all Waterloo City employees who are affected by miscarriages and stillbirths. This is an issue that's personal to me and is personal to a lot of families in the Cedar Valley, Greeter said. I want us to lay down a marker that we as a city, as an employer, care about our employees in their darkest days. I want to make sure we are taking care of those who need support, he said. Council members Sharon Juwan and Margaret Klein mentioned concerns about the specific language in the resolution. Klein said that despite it being, quote, a little flawed, end quote, she would vote to pass it because of her own experience with miscarriage. My seventh pregnancy was a set of twins. Only my little boy made it, Klein said. No one paid attention to that sort of thing back then. You were supposed to be happy that you had one. I'm going to vote for that child, she said. Between 10 and 15% of known pregnancies end in miscarriage. Yet there is no federal requirement to provide paid time off after pregnancy loss. Earlier this year, New Zealand passed legislation that grants up to three days of bereavement leave to the parent and partner in cases of miscarriage or stillbirth. The U.S. has yet to enact such a law, 
leaving it to individual companies, organizations, and local governments to implement paid leave policies for pregnancy loss. In a tweet, Greeter wrote, This policy is among the first in the state and nation. I'm so proud that we unanimously voted to lift up our families in their time of need. In September, Come and Go CEO Tanner Krause announced that the company now covers loss of pregnancy in its bereavement policy. Both parents get five days of paid time off to recover. Girl Scouts of Greater Iowa also offers paid bereavement leave, which includes five days off for a miscarriage. Greeter said that by passing a resolution publicly, rather than just letting the city's HR department put forth a policy, the council is helping to, quote, erase the stigma by shining the light of policy on it, end quote. The length of time that families would be eligible to take off under the policy was not included in the resolution text. Now the closer look column, meet a leader you should know. Kim Perez, president and CEO, Greater Des Moines Botanical Garden by Michael Crum. Kim Perez began her new role as president and CEO of the Greater Des Moines Botanical Garden in April. She has spent her career in the nonprofit sector, mostly working with children, families, and community-based services, with more than a decade serving as CEO. Before coming to Des Moines, Perez worked at Cradle, a suburban Chicago-based adoption agency. Saying she's not bad at raising plants at home, Perez said there are similarities between running programs that serve children and families and operating the nonprofit botanical garden, and she looks forward to incorporating her philosophy and expanding the garden's role in the community. How has your background in community-based programs helped prepare you for your new role leading a botanical garden? Our mission is focused on plants, the education around plants, and the curation of these beautiful plants, and helping people feel connected to plants. But the way we bring our mission to life is still about people coming to us and enjoying what we've curated, what we've cultivated, what we've grown and nurtured. Those are the same things we do in a community, right? People have to be nurtured to grow. That's my background, growing children, helping them be raised and feel safe and engaged in a community setting within a family. And much of that is still very much present in the work of a public garden. Yes, the work we do centers around these plants, but it's how do we bring these plants to the community? How do we bring, build those bridges when you might not have the opportunity to have a conversation with someone? except here at the garden, where you have something in common and you can appreciate the beauty, or you can come and find some peace. Right now, the botanical garden is lifting our head up, looking around and saying, where can we help solve community problems? How can we give back to the community? And where are there things happening where we could add value? What are some of those opportunities for greater community engagement? One thing we're doing is developing a water smart garden. One of the expansions is the native Iowa dry meadow, 
and that's a sandy soil mixture, and those plants don't need a lot of water. They don't need a lot of irrigation, so we are actively part of more and more conversations around water quality and conservation, and the role plants play in the, the ability for us as a community to influence those water-based con conversations. So water quality education is something we're partnering with a number of different local organizations to advance the programming we offer, offer here at the garden. Our angle for that conversation is that with enough information, we in our backyards at home can choose plants that don't require as much water, and they're still beautiful, and they're still what you would expect to see in Iowa, and how we in our own home gardens make those choices that then have some broader community impact in terms of water conservation. This is an example of ways the botanical garden can take what we know and bring it to the community in different ways. It's a little bit of a shift, but we think it's one that's going to be impactful. What goals do you have in your new role? It's a clear two-pronged approach. We have 14 acres of land here, and we are only occupying about seven acres. So we will be doubling our footprint in the next decade. So expanding those gardens, making sure we can use that opportunity to accomplish some of that community engagement. We want to capture as much as we can in terms of our ability to interact with those who come and visit Des Moines and those who live in Greater Des Moines. We will be focused on interacting more intentionally with the John Pat Dorian Trail. How can we be more welcoming, more accessible along the trail? How can we engage more families and people of all different backgrounds in ways that we've not yet done before? So part of our expansion will include intentional and purposeful connections to family garden spaces, ways to interact and engage with children at younger ages. The second prong is really about how we take the mission of the garden out of our borders and into the community. Maybe there are ways we can bring a growing experience to a young child in a school. Bringing partnerships together to bring plant education and our mission to life. One of the ways we're approaching our programming is around the reality that the plants in our collection represent places all around the globe, as do our neighbors. How can we create opportunities to tell those stories, the plant stories, the people stories? to build bridges and help people know they are welcome here and that we might have something that feels like home. Tell us about your management style. I think because I'm a social worker, it is really one that is incredibly collaborative. I want to surround myself with people who are passionate about what they're doing, who are smart in their own way. I don't need to know everything, and I don't need to be a decider on everything there is to decide. I really want to surround myself with a group of quality people that are qualified and capable. I want to be part of a team. I'm just like everybody else. I just happen to have the title of CEO. So my management style is really open door, member of the team, and really that collaborative focus. My primary job is to leave this garden better than I found it. And that's really easy to do with a team of people who are super passionate and wanting to move this organization forward.
What is it about the botanical garden that you think most people in the community don't know? As a person who is new to public gardens, and as a person who's not a master gardener, I've learned so much, not through taking classes, but just by being present. You don't have to have the highest level of understanding of plants to be able to learn something and take it home or just frankly, come and enjoy what's here. There's something for everyone. This is also a place with a lot of opportunities to volunteer. If we can be part of a community that invites people in who hadn't thought of us before, you don't have to know plants, but if you do, there's also something to benefit from if you come and visit. You're listening to the reading of the business record for Friday, October 29th on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. In this week's culture section, nine diversity, equity, and inclusion ideas from this year's 90 Ideas lineup. It's no surprise that leaders are keenly focused on diversity, equity, and inclusion. This year's leaders involved in our 90 Ideas in 90 Minutes event were no exception. Here are nine ideas they shared about DEI. Check out all of the speakers and all 90 of their ideas at businessrecord.com forward slash nine zero ideas by Emily Barsky, editor. Jacqueline Easy, Chief Strategist and Director Health Equity, Diversity Inclusion at Mercy One, Iowa. Embrace equity. Quote, a boat cannot move forward if the oars are unequal, an African proverb. The pandemic exposed long festering wounds caused by systemic vulnerabilities. Race and ethnicity were risk markers for disproportionate rates of infection, hospitalization, and death due to COVID-19, as well as conditions such as socioeconomic status, housing, education, and other social determinants. Having equitable oars, social determinants, will propel the boat and our community to move forward together. Practice cultural humility. Quote, many different flowers make a bouquet, Islamic proverb. Also from Jacqueline Easy of Mercy One. At Mercy One, we practice cultural humility, which is a lifelong process of self-reflection and gaining an insight into our unconscious and implicit biases. As a result, our commitment to embracing our diverse colleague and patient population is more than a one-and-done check-the-box session. From Sarah Noel Wilson, Chief Edge Officer at Sarah Noel Wilson, Inc. Inclusion is non-negotiable. My colleague, Gilmara Villanova-Mitchell, DEI leader, told me, quote, you cannot be a great leader if you can only lead people who look and sound like you, end quote. While I consider myself open and supportive to all, I wasn't intentional about inclusion. I didn't see, and still don't always see, 
where I may exclude others. Great teams exist when everyone feels safe to be their true selves. Act. One small but powerful action we can take is to diversify the voices we follow and learn from. If most of the people I interact with, books I read, or people I follow on social media look and sound like me, then I am missing out on experiences from people with different lived experiences. Tom Hardy, Chairman, President, and CEO of Meredith Corp. Inclusion should be inclusive. The responsibility and opportunity for creating a more diverse, equitable, and inclusive organization is shared by everyone. At Meredith, we're advancing our diversity, equity, inclusion work through interconnected efforts of education, recruitment, retention, and communication. And we are committed to being representative of all our consumers and partners within our products and services. An inclusive approach re recognizes that great ideas come from everywhere. Earlier this year, a dedicated group of employees created Good Impressions by Meredith, a new program that provides pro bono media and marketing consultation services for Black, Indigenous, and People of Color, BIPOC, or LGBTQIA-owned businesses. I'm extremely proud of everyone involved in this effort to use Meredith's resources and expertise as a force for good. Sid Jaworker, Principal, Terracon, and owner, Teehees Comedy Club. Let your employees express themselves. Many of our companies focus on having diverse workforces so that we re represent those we serve. Diversity is about more than demographic labels like race and gender. It can also be the way we dress, the way we speak, and the way we present ourselves to the outside world. It's about being free to express who we are in the workplace rather than leaving our identity at the front door. I found that the strongest client relationships I have and the happiest I've been at my job have come from expressing my most authentic self. Jawarker also said, include people based on their expertise, not their demographics. Representation matters. The right kind of representation respects people for their expertise, not the box they check. Including diverse points of view is not about getting a rubber stamp of approval on a prefabricated idea, but about collaborating to build something that molds and shifts to reflect the voices of those you invited. Diverse points of view should be catalysts for innovation, not boxes to check. Kenya Calderon Cerrone, Vice President, Bilingual Business Development, Director, Green State Credit Union. Uplift and promote women of color. Women of color do not get enough recognition for their contributions across all industries. Their work is often overlooked, ignored, and underpaid. Data tells us how the disparities among women of color are worse than other demographics. For example, black women are the most educated demographic yet highly underpaid. Business leaders have the power to address these disparities by recruiting,
compensating and mentoring women of color. Organizations are proven to do better when women are in leadership positions. We have plenty of female candidates of color awaiting for an opportunity to shine. We can be open door and uplift an entire generation of leaders. Calderon Cerrone also said, be uncomfortable with injustice, not conversations. Many are uncomfortable with conversations about race, inequalities, and disparities. Imagine the change we could foster if we were more uncomfortable about the actual injustices in Iowa. Business organizations and leaders can do more than we can imagine to address the systemic barriers faced by Iowans of color. We can start by not taking things personally and by taking actions toward an equitable state for all. Christina Moffitt, Director of Small Business Resources, Greater Des Moines Partnership, and owner, Creme Cupcake and Dessert. Discover a special ingredient. Talent is a key ingredient, and when you look in new places for talent, you sometimes uncover a special ingredient, a.k.a. a team member. Krem has always had a position on staff available for people who are experiencing recovery in life and hires employees from a homeless shelter, welcoming people who need a second chance. This provides valuable job history by allowing them to gain work experience. It also opens the door for promotion internally or allows for us to be a reference for a future job that is an advancement of something that they've always wanted to do. How do people ever re-enter the workforce if not given a second chance? Current success story at CREM. Hired a person at an entry-level position, promoted them to head baker. The additional income allowed them to move out of the shelter, gain confidence, test for a driver's license, and now have a car. All in 10 months since starting with CREM. Krem has also worked with Candio and Easter Seals and offered paid internships with several Des Moines high schools for students looking to secure their first job in baking. From the Real Estate and Development section, Iowa's certified sites draw new development to state. Woodward's certified site helped bring a massive warehouse project, officials say by Kathy A. Bolton. When Marquetta Oliver was interviewed for Bondurant's city administrator job, interviewers asked how she would improve the balance among commercial, industrial, and residential land valuations. Oliver was prepared with an answer. Pursue state site certification that, when achieved, tells a potential developer that property is ready for development, she said. Oliver was familiar with the state program. When she was Norwalk's city manager, the community gained state site certification for a 55-acre tract west of Iowa Highway 28. The certified site helped the community attract Windsor Windows and Doors Incorporated and Michael Foods, she said. It's an investment of both time and money, Oliver said of the site certification process. Basically, what you're doing in the process is the due diligence for a prospective developer. 
When people come and develop, they don't want to develop in two or three years. They want to develop now, she said. Just as Bondurant was completing the certification process in mid-2019, a representative for retail giant Amazon Inc. inquired about building a fulfillment center in the community of about 7,500 residents. 47 days after the initial meeting between Bondurant officials and those from Ryan Companies, the developer representing Amazon, dirt was being moved on land at 532nd Street Southwest. The center, which cost an estimated $250 million to develop, opened in December 2020. When we first met with them, their timeline was very important to them, Oliver said. Because the site was certified, we had already done the endangered species study. We'd done the wetlands delineation. We had done the architectural survey. Moving that fast would not have been possible had we not had all of those other pieces in place already, she said. The Iowa Certified Site Program was launched by the Iowa Economic Development Authority in May 2012 to address the lack of project-ready industrial sites in the state. The state has 26 certified sites that range in size from 67 to 890 acres, with three others going through the process. Since the program began, it has attracted more than $1.38 billion in capital investment due to the availability of these development-ready sites. The Iowa Certified Site Program is an independent, third-party certification program that uses the nationally recognized site selection firm Quest Site Solutions as the certifying agent. While similar certification programs exist in other states, Iowa officials believe Iowa's program is the most robust, said Amy Cooler's program manager for the Iowa Certified State Program. Every site that is going to go under development, there's certain things that have to happen before that project can begin turning dirt, she said. The property needs access to utilities, including gas, electrical, water, wastewater, and telecommunications. Surveys need to be completed, including architectural, to ensure artifacts are not disturbed. In addition, private land over... Landowners must sign five-year agreements to sell their land if an offer is made. All of that takes time, Coolers said. Iowa's certification process typically takes up to 16 months to complete. Once a site is certified, developer, development on the site can usually begin within three to six months, she said. Most developers don't want to wait two or more years before starting construction, Ehlers said. A lot of times, time is of the essence. For Amazon's project in Bondurant, that was a key factor for them. The site had just gone through the certification process and everything was done and ready to go. A similar scenario occurred recently in Woodward, a community located in northeast Dallas County. In recent weeks, backers of a potential development approached Dallas County economic officials and those in the city about building a massive warehouse in the Woodward Economic Business Park, located on 190 acres south of Iowa Highway 141 and east of Iowa Highway 210. 
The site received state certification in 2018. People who were told about the project signed non-disclosure agreements that bar them from divulging the company behind the proposed development. However, all signs point to Amazon as the company behind it. Alex Lynch, executive director of the Greater Dallas County Development Alliance, said inquiries have increased in recent months about potential development in the county's three sites that are certified. The others are located in Van Meter and Perry. With those inquiries, the turnaround time has been very, very tight. They wanted information in three or so days, Lynch said. The fact that we have these sites that are certified means that we're able to respond to those inquiries. Communities that don't already have that information usually can't respond as quickly or at all, he said. Lynch, who signed a non-disclosure agreement about the proposed development in Woodward, said, Having a certified site has been important for Project Hawk. Project Hawk, the code name for the proposed development, which backers want completed by September 2022. In mid-October, the Woodward City Council approved the site plan for a 1,080,300-square-foot building with 98 loading docks and parking stalls for 392 trailers and 727 vehicles. The development would be located on 120 acres in the business park. Details of a development agreement between the city and the company behind Project Hawk are being finalized, Lynch said. Land acquisitions are also being completed, he said. According to the site plan approved by the Woodward Council, property owners include DBBL Partnership, Larry Frantum, and Midwest Oil Seeds, Inc. Spokespeople for Amazon have declined to comment on whether the company plans to build a warehouse in Woodward. Asked if the Seattle-based company favors developing on certified sites, a spokesperson wrote, There are a lot of contributing factors that go into our thought process on where to place a new fulfillment center. Now we'll turn to the Elbert Files, Dave Elbert's column. Economic Optimism We are certainly in uncharted waters. Economist James Paulson wrote in a recent newsletter that explores topics ranging from inflation to economic policy, employment to productivity, and millennials to downtowns. Aging baby boomers are being pushed aside as the main drivers of the U.S. economy, Paulson wrote. They are being replaced by millennials who now have an average age of 30 and, quote, are finally getting married, forming households, and driving the home-buying binge, end quote. Younger generations are also playing an increasingly prominent role in the stock market's trading volume as they drive it in new directions. Think Reddit and meme stocks along with Bitcoin, The Economist added. Although Paulson does not mention a connection between millennials and the rebirth of central cities, that's happened in Des Moines, where young workers have moved downtown in droves in recent years. He noted that, quote, central cities across the country were shut down during the pandemic, and most are still more closed than open, end quote, 
as many people continue to work remotely. But he added, whatever happens, downtowns will eventually reopen and, quote, some sense of normalcy will finally return, end quote, boosting optimism and confidence and providing a shot in the arm in a manner never experienced in past recoveries. A sense of optimism is evident throughout his Paulson's Perspective newsletter, published online on October 12th by the Minneapolis-based Luthold Group. Paulson's main headline is, Growing into Itself, implying that several features of the current economy are on the move. In addition to youth growing into leadership and downtowns repopulating into recovery, the newsletter explores productivity. Paulson produces a chart that shows productivity rising during the decades after World War II, followed by a decline until the late 1990s when technology advances created another peak, followed by another decline after the 2007-2009 to Great Recession. In more recent years, Paulson notes, technology innovations are again on the rise with advances tied to environmental concerns and medicine, including COVID vaccines. The new technologies, he suggests, will fuel new gains in productivity that can push the current economic recovery to new levels. Labor imbalances. Disconnects in labor markets are increasingly obvious in the wake of the COVID pandemic, with labor statistics suggesting, quote, at least 5 million workers have gone missing, Paulson wrote. The missing workers include many who were sidelined by the pandemic. Some retired early. Others were parents who were unable to work because they were needed at home to help children with remote learning. Still others, aided by, quote, the massive extension of unemployment benefits, end quote, took the opportunity to step back and take a fresh look at their careers and plot alternative futures. Inflation. The primary risk facing the current economic recovery is inflation, Paulson wrote. But he added, quote, several forces support an eventual return to more moderate inflation, end quote, including the return of sidelined workers and productivity increases from technological innovations. Economic policy. During the last decade or so, Paulson wrote, many believe there has been, quote, overuse and abuse of monetary and fiscal policies, end quote. And that has resulted in increased concern about unintended consequences like inflation. But he added those expansionist policies have now turned constrictive, indicating, quote, officials are moving toward a more responsible and less overwhelming approach, end quote. The bottom line, Paulson said, is, quote, investors should anticipate that the character of the economy and its corollary bull market will likely unfold in a very different manner than markets of the past, end quote. Uncertain, yes, but not necessarily bad. And that does it for today's reading of the business record for Friday, October 29th, 2021. I'm your reader, Susan Hack. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. Thanks for listening.